Welcome to Fertility Friendly Food. I'm your host, Stephanie Velarkis, accredited practicing dietitian and nutritionist and director of The Dietologist, an Australian-based practice focused on optimizing fertility through nutrition. This podcast will bring you snack-sized episodes for you to learn, grow, and be inspired by the latest research, facts, and practical lifestyle tips about eating well for optimal fertility, helping you cut through the confusion and myths to take back some of the control on your fertility journey, one bite at a time. Well, hello and welcome back to episode four of the podcast. So glad to have you here. And today's episode is all about PCOS or polycystic ovary syndrome. And the reason I want to talk to you today about this particular condition is because it does have such an impact on fertility. In fact, about 50% of fertility cases have PCOS as part of its presentation. So what does PCOS stand for? What does it mean? Um, And I might even talk a little bit about the push to have it renamed and what my top five tips are with regards to eating well with PCOS. And I'm sure we'll be diving into PCOS and more specific topics in future episodes, but I just wanted to give a really broad overview as a bit of a reference point um, for all of you who might be a little bit new to this space um, or even new to the diagnosis of PCOS for yourself. So PCOS stands for polycystic ovary syndrome, and as the name suggests, one of its key diagnostic characteristics is uh, a cystic appearance of the ovaries, which isn't in fact cysts in general, Um, it's in fact lots of eggs that aren't quite mature. So they're forming little kind of seedlings that none of them quite grow up into the full plant, so they don't quite get to the point of being mature enough for ovulation. So that's just one feature. But in fact, PCOS is quite a complex uh, hormonal dysfunction of the body or syndrome, which just means a a collection of symptoms. So I'm now going to walk you through what are the few criteria that we use to diagnose PCOS. And this has to be done by your doctor. Um, It's not something I've ever diagnosed because it's outside my scope of practice. Um, But if I do see these signs in women, I definitely send them back to their GP or gynecologist for further review. So PCOS, the first criteria you need to look for is Oligo or amenorrhea, meaning too frequent menstruation or too infrequent menstruation. Too infrequent, meaning more than 35 days apart, and too frequent, meaning less than 21 days apart. So that's one feature. The second is clinical signs or biochemical signs of hyperandrogenism or high androgen levels. Now, androgens generally refer to hormones like testosterone, for example. And when this is too high in a woman, this can contribute to symptoms like acne, hair loss or hair growth, especially around the face, back, chest, belly, um, or excessive amounts of hair being grown on the arms, legs and armpits, for example. Um, However, you might not have any of these signs. You might just have high androgens on your blood tests. Um, So those are another key symptom to bear in mind. 
And then the third is, like I said, is on an ultrasound having um, a polycystic ovarian appearance, so lots of eggs and ovaries. This might also be diagnosed with an AMH test, which we'll talk about in a future episode, um, which is looking at the ovarian reserve level. So if that's really high, that could be an indicator of PCOS, but it's not a diagnostic criteria. Just to note, I see a lot of women who get diagnosed with um, polycystic ovaries, but not polycystic ovarian syndrome. And I think this is really confusing for women. So polycystic ovaries is really quite a normal thing, especially amongst adolescents and young women who have lots of eggs. Um, You can have a cystic appearance of the ovaries or polycystic ovaries, but not without those that dysfunction in your period or those symptoms like I described or blood work, um, that doesn't spell out the overall picture of PCOS. So it's it's not the same. Um, so yeah, just definitely clarify that one. And I think that's why one of the main reasons why people are, are pushing for a name change. Um, they don't really have a good proposed name at this time. Um, but the, the polycystic ovaries is a symptom of the hormonal dysfunction. It's an endocrine disorder. Um, so we need to be looking at hormone function rather than just the cystic appearance of the ovaries and treating that. So last year we were lucky enough to have a new international assessment and diagnostic and management guideline be released for PCOS. And this really spelled out, you know, what, how we should be treating women with PCOS. Fair enough, the diagnosis, you've got your diagnosis. Many people receive this in their late adolescent years or early twenties. Some don't receive it until they're trying to conceive, unfortunately. Um, so later in their life, But this latest guideline really spelled out how we should be optimally managing women with PCOS upon diagnosis. And in fact, the first thing that we should be doing is diet and lifestyle interventions. This should be first and foremost when it comes to PCOS management um, and not metformin, which is a really popular insulin sensitizing drug, and not the pill. These are actually what we call second line therapies. First line therapies is diet and lifestyle. And I know this has only been released last year, but I often ask my patients to think back as to when they were diagnosed with PCOS and what was their options provided. And many were not even aware that diet played a role. And perhaps, you know, 10 years ago, we didn't know as much as we know now about diet playing such a role in PCOS. But many women are given the advice to go away and just lose some weight and everything will get better. But it's, you know, <laughs> I'm sure I have many friends who have PCOS and they all tell me how how much of a struggle that is. It's it's a lot easier said than done. And um, going back to healthcare professionals who don't quite understand that struggle can leave them feeling really low and bad about themselves, like they've messed up. But it's not you. It's PCOS. PCOS makes it really, really tough. Um, and so I try and take the shift, the focus away from weight for women with PCOS and actually focus on, hey, we've got a problem with your hormones. This is what's going on. This is how it's all working. This is how we can eat and treat our body to optimize this. And, you know, if weight changes as a byproduct of that, either up or down, because not all women with PCOS are overweight. Um, that is another myth. Um, I've recently put out a blog um, all about lean PCOS, quote unquote. Um, so women within a healthy weight range or under the below the healthy weight range, you actually need to gain some weight for ovulation. 
and how that is actually prevalent too and that we don't really have a good way of managing that because all of our dietary strategies are to restrict calories as per the guidelines. So um, the other good thing that going just back to the guideline briefly, um, the other good thing that came out of that guideline was that there is no one single dietary pattern or, or dietary strategy that's effective for all women with PCOS. So anyone who's um, pushing a, a one size fits all approach for PCOS, it's simply just not that simple. It just doesn't work like that. We haven't found that one diet is better than the other to the point where we're confident enough to just recommend that diet from here on out. There's features of certain dietary studies and patterns that we like to use, like low GI carbohydrates or slow-releasing carbohydrates, lots of vegetables, adequate protein, reducing sugars and salts and saturated fats, including enough fish, you know, the fundamental basic healthy eating principles. But we're still not able to show whether the ketogenic diet is the best diet. That's just one example. And in fact, the studies we have about the ketogenic diet in PCOS, which I know is really, really popular. I get questions about this all the time. If I go keto, will it help my PCOS? If I go keto, will it help me conceive? Well, first things first, you can't be keto when you do fall pregnant. So that's um, a problem. We can't be in a state of dietary ketogenesis during pregnancy. And ideally for all those ladies with type 1 diabetes where they have diabetic ketogenesis, where they're in ketosis as a result of high um, blood sugars, is... We don't want that either. So that's something we want to avoid. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is the studies that we did have were such small numbers and such a large proportion of women actually dropped out of the study that um, we don't actually have enough data to even really look at the ketogenic diet. And in fact, the one study that I'm specifically referring to looked at 11 women who were given less than 20 grams of carbohydrates each day, which is roughly half a cup of rice worth of carbohydrates per day. It's not a lot. Um, and in this 24-week study, they showed that, yes, the dietary pattern improved um, hormones and weight and testosterone and insulin, but six women dropped out because they weren't able to follow the diet. That's more than half the people. We just don't have enough evidence. And really, that just goes to show how lacking in sustainability this these kinds of diets are 24 weeks is is really less than six months or roughly six months it's not a lot of time and uh, when we're talking about pcos we're looking at lifelong strategies pcos you may not experience the symptoms you may have a regular period you may not have those hyperandrogen symptoms you may even not have the cysts on the ovaries but you will always have this diagnosis. It's a chronic condition that definitely increases your risk of key conditions like type 2 diabetes later in life, gestational diabetes in your pregnancy, high cholesterol levels and the like. And these things are all able to be managed through appropriate diet and lifestyle interventions, plus or minus some medical help too. I'm not saying that no medical help is required for managing PCOS. But I just wanted to shed some light on that particular dietary pattern because it's one I definitely hear a lot about. So whilst I'm on the topic of PCOS, I just wanted to also talk about a few of the other things that 
may not form part of the diagnostic criteria, but are common experiences that women report with PCOS. And that is um, cravings, like sugar cravings, mood swings, um, or, or low mood. There is some association between women with PCOS having higher rates of depression and anxiety. Um, and this is definitely something we want to be mindful of. Um, weight gain or unexplained rapid weight gain tends to be another um, common symptom that women report with PCOS. So now I just wanted to briefly touch on on that collection of symptoms because they're not part of the diagnosis of PCOS, but they are so common. So these things are generally secondary to um, insulin resistance. Now, insulin resistance can be a whole other podcast and topic in and of itself. So if you're interested in hearing about that, please shoot me a message on Instagram And yeah, I'm more than happy to chat about insulin resistance. But this is basically where insulin, the hormone that is made by the pancreas, which helps to facilitate glucose, the sugar that we break down from all carbohydrate foods, all carbohydrates, whether it's starch or sugar, with the exception of fiber, are broken down into the units of glucose, which we are then able to absorb for energy. And every cell in the body needs glucose, and the biggest one being our brain. And so you'll notice when you don't have enough food for a little while that you might get a bit foggy or lacking concentration, and that's that deprivation of glucose happening there. But anyway, back to insulin. So insulin actually helps glucose get from the blood into the cells for it to do its work. And so what happens over time or for some people is that their cells become resistant to the action of insulin. It's like when the car key battery just is getting a bit old and you're trying to unlock the car door and it's just not happening. You can't get into the car. It's just getting really hard. So you press it and press it and you press it or you shake it a bit or you get really close and you try all these different things to get into the car, right? So it's a very similar thing when we're talking about insulin resistance. And what this means is, is then the pancreas goes, hey, we've still got all this this glucose in the blood, we need more insulin and more insulin. So your pancreas pumps out more and more insulin, trying to overwhelm the cell to get the glucose in. And in this process, what's happening is, is you've eaten something, the glucose is trapped in the blood for longer than it should be before getting to the cells, which leaves means that your mood doesn't improve when you're hungry right away because there's this lag time. There's the ability to eat more because it's not actually getting into your cells and your cells are still screaming out for food and nutrition. So that can lead to overeating in some people. And for other people, we get this reactive effect where we see a big um, uptake in the glucose. And once it's in the cells, you just crash really quickly and you go quite low in your blood sugar levels. and, And that can leave you craving more and wanting more really intensely. I distinctly remember seeing one woman who told me that she'd wake in the middle of the night and um, had to eat 20 chocolate bars. Um, and and they can be extraordinarily intense cravings um, for sugar because your body is literally crying out for carbohydrates to fill that need. And this is the collection of symptoms that we see women with insulin resistance, which is what really is commonly tested for alongside PCOS and all that blood work that you get done as well. So, Women with insulin resistance and PCOS versus those without can be managed 
rather similarly, but there needs to be some um, special attention given to that in that particular circumstance. So today I wanted to wrap up by sharing my top five tips to helping manage PCOS um, through diet. So I'm not going to really cover exercise or mental health in this episode because it's not my area of expertise as a dietitian. Um, but here's my top five nutrition tips. My first tip is don't cut the carbs completely. Work on consistent carbs throughout the day before you raid the cupboard to toss every bread, cereal, potato, and packet of pasta inside. PCOS does not warrant a low-carbohydrate diet. In fact, there's no one research diet, as I've said, that is great for everyone with PCOS, and that's simply because everyone with PCOS comes a little bit different. When They're not all the same. It's a collection of symptoms, not a disease like a cold, where we get the exact same symptoms every time you get a cold. You get a runny nose, you get runny eyes, you feel fatigued. With PCOS, you might have one symptom or the other or two or or well, you have to have two or three to get a diagnosis, but you might have all three. You might have these two. You might have these two. It's really diverse. And so that just means that you need a tailored approach, not just a one size fits all. So my tips about carbs is spreading it out across the day um, and making sure you're getting some in. Um, And that will keep your blood sugar stable across the day and give insulin the chance to work. And this really helps with mood stabilization as well for a lot of women. The second is combine carbohydrates with some protein and or fats to help give you longer lasting energy without the blood sugar crashes. Now, that's not to say if you have some carbohydrate containing food on its own, that's the end of the world. It's truly not. Um, My approach is really flexible, um, but where you can make some effort to try and incorporate some protein, fats or fiber to your carbohydrate food. So your bread, cereals, rice, pasta, potatoes, fruits, um, legumes and beans to a degree, um, starchy, starchy veggies as well. So um, there's more than just, you know, everyone thinks carbs, bread. There's more than just that. There's lots of nutritious foods that contain carbohydrates, including bread. Um, we have this idea that bread is the devil, which <laughs> I really just blame the whole low carb paleo movement for that delight. Um, anyway, the third one is you don't need to ditch dairy. I see this massive movement in PCOS. Ditch dairy, ditch gluten. It'll make it will make the world of difference to your PCOS. And I just think that's because it just causes this mass avoidance of processed foods and more um, reliance on whole unrefined foods. And that's why women feel better or see the results that they're after. It's not, it's not the dairy or the gluten in and of itself. Um, unless you're intolerant or allergic or you just don't like to drink dairy milk because of ethical preferences or other reasons, there's no evidence to show that going dairy-free is going to help you manage PCOS. In fact, it's a pretty awesome high-protein food which gives you a slow-release calm that can make the perfect mid-afternoon or pre-bedtime snack to keep you feeling satisfied. And bonus, we know that two to three servings of full-fat dairy a day is really helpful for fertility as well based on the Nurses' Health Study. Number four, don't ditch gluten. Again, there's not one single study that shows that gluten isn't good for PCOS or has a harmful effect. And we know from other research that gluten-free diets tend to be lower in dietary fiber, which is really important for healthy bowel function and other aspects of hormone development 
hormone function as well. Um, and we also know that it's got less folic acid, less iodine, and a few other key nutrients that we really need in this preconception time period. So going gluten-free, unless you've got an intolerance or you have celiac disease, is probably not going to help, at least not in the long term. Um, if you get a short-term benefit and you're not sure why, this is a great time to reach out to a dietitian and to explore that further. Number five, love your legumes. Rich in plant-based iron, zinc, magnesium, B vitamins, protein, and soluble fiber, they're seriously nothing to not love about legumes. They also contain the phytoestrogen called genistein, which is also found in our soy foods. Um, And everyone freaks out about phytoestrogens mimicking estrogen in the body and exerting hormonal effects, but this is really weak. And in fact, all the research in soy and PCOS is actually quite positive, especially with regards to cholesterol levels. So genistein has been studied in supplemental form in women with PCOS and has shown improvements in reducing testosterone and improving cholesterol levels. And that's probably as well because of, um, from a legume perspective, it's probably probably because of the uh, soluble fiber. Um, there's also been studies that show that pulse-based diets are really beneficial for PCOS as well. So those are my five top tips for managing PCOS and my first podcast about PCOS specifically. I know there's going to be heaps of questions. I did not even dive into the whole world of supplements or specific nutrients for PCOS. It's just a really broad overview. Um, I thought that was really important to just lay that foundation first. But if you'd like to see more episodes about PCOS, please get in touch with me. You can email me directly at hello at the dietologist.com.au. I'd love to hear from you. Or you can find me on Instagram at the underscore dietologist. Don't forget to download my free ultimate preconception checklist for him and for her on my website. I'll have that linked in the show notes below as well. And if you'd like to talk to me more about your personal situation, jump on my website, thedietologist.com.au to book your free 15 minute discovery call. And yeah, catch you on socials until next week, guys. Bye. 